So again, this is kind of an opportunity to rethink and reconfigure some aspects of your course that after we get back to our normal way of doing things could still be beneficial to you. You can still rely on the work that you do now in your language class going forward. And I think that your future students would benefit from the work that you put in to kind of transform your class into a more proficiency-based class. And I know that there's lots of resources on how to do this. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. We talk with our friend and colleague, Chris Kaiser, about strategies for assessment when teaching online, both synchronously and asynchronously. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. As COVID-19 moves education around the country into virtual spaces, educators are full of questions about how to transition into new modalities, particularly regarding how to administer quizzes, tests, and other evaluations. In this episode, we are joined once again by our colleague, Chris Kaiser, program manager for the Shared Course Initiative, a collaborative agreement among Columbia, Cornell, and Yale universities to share instruction in the less commonly taught languages. Chris shares several philosophies and strategies for assessing students in a time of social distance. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Chris. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we start diving into the topic, can you please talk a little bit about who you are, what you do every day on a day-to-day basis, outside of COVID-19, but also now that we are under these new circumstances and your path with, with languages. Sure. So I am the program manager of the Shared Course Initiative, which is a collaboration between Columbia, Cornell, and Yale for sharing less commonly taught languages using high definition video conferencing. So what that means is that students at these three schools go to their respective language resource centers or centers for language study. They go to these specialized distance classrooms and they join in a class that has actually two or three sites. So a teacher will be at one site, maybe at Columbia, and then there might be students at Yale and students at Cornell as well. And uh, so you create this kind of virtual classroom space. So it's a form of distance language instruction, but it is a classroom-based a form of distance language instruction. You're in class with other people at your same school. And I've been doing this for about four years. Before that, I did a PhD in Italian literature. And so I, and and really the thing that I liked most about, uh, about that was the language teaching component. I've been learning Italian since I was in, uh, freshman year of college, and I continue to learn. So it's, it's great to be able to continue to interact with, with language in these, in these many ways. Yeah, and the Shared Course Initiative is actually positioning our three institutions quite well with this move to virtual instruction right now. No, I think that's right, because um, when you start teaching in the Shared Course Initiative, you start off teaching in a face-to-face class, but then you move to a form of instruction that is over distance or via distance. And when you make that transformation, when you make that switch, you are changing your pedagogy, you're changing the way that you approach students, you're changing the way that you approach many aspects of your language instruction. So to go from the classroom-based model to the distributed model, which is what we're all doing now, teaching via Zoom, you're really talking about the same underlying pedagogical principles. So it's very easy for the people who've been teaching the Shared Course Initiative to make that switch. 
And I think that's something that we want to keep reminding our colleagues that the underlying pedagogical approach of how they teach really shouldn't be impacted by the environment. There are certainly some kind of adjustments that you have to make because certain things simply won't be achievable in this virtual environment in the same manner as you can do it if your students are right there with you in a classroom. But this is something that I think we keep reminding people here at Cornell that the ultimate pedagogical goals, what you want your students to be able to do at the end of the semester should not change, right? You might have to adapt given that time constraints are different now, but I think the underlying pedagogy of how languages should be taught and learned and acquired really shouldn't change because of the environment. For sure. Good language teaching is good irrespective of the yeah. environment in which it occurs. But you're right that um, you do need to make some changes, but the point of departure for those changes is your face-to-face -face class. And over time, you can recalibrate some of the things that you do, you can rethink some of the things that you do, but ultimately, you do have the same overall approach to language teaching. You just need to make a few shifts. So Chris, can you tell us a little bit about your ideas for best practices for assessment when teaching in this model? Sure. So we have a little bit of experience with this because of the shared course initiative. We have to give tests, we have to give quizzes across sites. And so we have, um, we've done it. Although what you will find is that you need to make a few more adjustments when you're in the distributed model. So what we've done is we've had, for example, printed tests that are then delivered and then copied and scanned. You know, perhaps that might not be as easy to do in this environment, but there are some things that you can do immediately. And then there are some general principles that you can keep in mind that can inform what you do. And so I can talk about both. You know, in a workshop that I recently did with my colleague, Simon Zubarek, at Columbia, we talked about tests and quizzes in the distance language classroom. And we talked about both principles and, and strategies. Huh, and I'm happy uh -huh. to go into both. Yeah. So in terms of principles, I think that when you enter into the distance environment, you have to keep in mind a couple of ideas, ideas like flexibility and exploration. You have to realize that you can't do it exactly as you did before and you need to think about different ways to accomplish the same goal. So in many ways, this is kind of an adage that's true for everything in the in language teaching in the distance environment. Think about what your pedagogical goal is, or think about what your desired outcome is, and then figure out the best tool to accomplish that, and not the other way around. Don't find a tool and say, I'm going to shoehorn the pedagogical uh, approach into this tool. It should be, here's what I want to do. What's the best way to do it? And sometimes that means thinking outside of the box. And that's really one of the affordances of Zoom. I know that many people who are switching to online um, and distance language teaching in this time are using Zoom. And it it is a, really a multi-purpose tool. It is It has many different applications. And many of these applications are things that you should, as a teacher, look into and discover on your own to figure out what works best for you. So I guess the first principle really is that of having an open mind, being flexible, and being resilient. So that's that's kind of a general statement. But then the other principle that we talked about is that when you can, it is a good idea to try to offload synchronous, high-stakes, summative assessments. These are your classic 
chapter test where you deliver a stack of papers and the students write down you know, their answers about grammar questions. This kind of assessment is definitely the hardest to do in a distance environment. And let me also add that this type of assessment may not, as a general rule, be the best way to assess your students' progress in the language classroom. So, you know, one of the uh, silver linings of this very dark cloud is that you may take the opportunity to kind of reconceptualize the ways in which you assess your students. So I think one thing that we also want to keep in mind is that languages are different from many other subject areas in, in how they teach to begin with and how they go about assessment, right? I think by by virtue of, of language teaching, so much is about communication, so much is about one-on-one -on -one interactions between two speakers of the language, and that certainly can be a little bit more complicated to achieve in this distance environment. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that uh, further bolsters the case that having a high-stakes synchronous, that is, in-time assessment, and having relatively few of them may not be the best way for your students to be assessed. And this is particularly true because we're in this stressful moment. And so a student may ha have experienced some difficulty in moving home, or they're having trouble with their internet, or somebody yeah. in their family is sick. And so loading all of this, uh, you know, point value into one single test, you know, is not really fair, I think. So because, because of this, I think it's a good idea to have more ways of assessing and do assessments more frequently, but make those assessments lower stakes, um, make them asynchronous, allow students to work on things at home, um, or allow them to work on as, you know, many more assessments, as I was saying. Well, and actually one thing that you and Simon were talking about in your webinar was portfolio assessment, that that could be one way to kind of consolidate and, and also chronicle the learning process of our students. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I think that that kind of moves us from the conversation on principles into the conversation on strategies. And I think that that is probably the number one strategy that I would recommend in this case. Think about ways in which you can have your students do, say, uh, write an essay or make a film or do some type of project with an online resource. And you can adjust your syllabus a little bit and you can adjust the assessment portion of your syllabus such that, you know, perhaps a part of the final exam or a part of the midterm exam can be offloaded into a portfolio style project. I think in general, this is a good time to, I mean, you've already talked about rethinking how we assess our language classrooms and our language learners anyway. But I think another um, area outside of portfolio assessment is, is general task-based or um, project-based assessment that this is really a good time trying to offload a lot of what's happening synchronously to give our students a little bit more time and, and practice their language outside the classroom and engaging more in specific tasks and projects and then being able to showcase what they can do with the language through a, a, an accomplished task or a project. Yeah, I think one thing to keep in mind is that we're all working with uh, laptops and mobile devices right now. That's become the medium of instruction. And so I think that it's a good idea to try to 
lean into that and leverage that and see it really as a an affordance. So using um, using students' mobile devices to record some of the things that they're seeing on a daily basis, or uh, use a Google Slides presentation as a form of assessment. You know, when you are using your your learning management system, if it's Canvas or Blackboard or whatever it may be, you can have students' chats or conversations or um, or any material that they're putting into the LMS. You can assess that, and that can be part of the uh, the way that you determine their 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 grade as well. Um, so yeah, I think that this is exactly along the lines of of what I was suggesting. I would also suggest uh, perhaps move from summative assessments, offload some of the summative assessments to more formative assessments that sort of check in as you're going along and as you are taking them, they also help crystallize your knowledge. So um, this is a way in which your assessment can kind of do double duty because when you say, okay, you have to do many more assessments now because you're in the distance environment, well, make those assessments also part of the learning process more immediately than taking time to do, uh, you know, entire class length um, summative assessments. So in many ways, it's really a, a question of um, adaptation, adjustment, recalibration, reconceptualizing, and incrementalizing, as opposed to thinking in absolutes. It shouldn't be, oh, well, we have this uh, big test so that we, we definitely have to do it, or we don't do it at all. So yeah, you mentioned um, the idea of doing more portfolio projects or task-based uh, projects that can later be assessed. But I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about some of the other strategies. If if there are some aspects of your assessments that are that you really can't change, oh, like yeah. it's baked into the syllabus, you have to do this test, or it's yeah. coming up in a week and there's no way to prepare it or or move it. So we have a couple of strategies that we've used with the shared course initiative and that we spoke about with our columbia language teachers that i can go through that might be helpful it's more yeah that would be great like, you know quickly do this even though we're now in the distance environment yeah so the first one that we talked about is what i have called the projector method uh, i don't know how many of your listeners remember a device called an overhead projector but it basically projects a, a sheet of paper. <laughs> Good old days. Yep. So you can use Zoom as a kind of projector. So you can share your screen. And on your screen, you can have a Word document that has a couple of questions on it. Or you can share a PowerPoint slide that also has questions that students are responding to. And this is really good for a quiz or a short assessment or a comprehension check that students can do at home. So basically you would just share maybe three or four questions related to the uh, language structures or the topic or the theme of the day. And then students can uh, respond. They can respond either in a handwritten format. So they pick up a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. Actually, it's better to use a pen. Um, and then write their answers to those three or four questions, whether they be uh, thematic questions or, or structural questions. And then after they're done, you know, after five minutes, eight minutes, however much time you decide to assign it, then they use their phones to take a picture of it and then send it to you. They can put it, they can send it via email or perhaps even better, they could put it in a uh, in the LMS Dropbox so that all of the, all of the um, files are together in one place and you don't lose track of them. So that's, that's the handwritten method. 
Yeah, and this is actually a great suggestion because we've had a number of our lecturers here ask us, well, what do I do? You know, we don't use standard Roman alphabets, so our students can't really type up an essay. So I think doing it physically on paper and snapping a picture is a really cool idea. At Columbia, we use Canvas, and Canvas has a feature called SpeedGrader. So if you were to have students upload this uh, quiz to the assignments uh, function, then you could look at it in SpeedGrader and you can annotate it and you can write comments that you that are in a typed box. So that's one really easy way to keep yeah, track of all great. these files. And the other way, which is related, is the typed version of the projector method. So you could have students write on a piece of paper or you could have them type their answers as well. When you do that, however, you should make sure that all students are muting their microphones so you don't have uh, 15 people all typing at once. <laughs> Yeah, um, indeed. <laughs> that's been, I, I feel like if there's been any nugget of wisdom that I've truly been able to convey uh, to our teachers who aren't used to switching to this method, it's been the the muting of your personal <laughs> microphone. That's the, the great etiquette and, uh, and you know, chaos reducing move that <laughs> make Although, everyone's lives better immediately. <laughs> this is true, but then you lose out on some of the soundscapes. You know, you hear people's dogs barking, you hear... Uh, planes. But yeah, it's a good idea for students to generally mute their microphones when they're not yeah. engaged in uh, back and forth conversation. So yeah, that is the projector method. And that's one of the things that we talked about with our Columbia teachers. And that's really good for quizzes. And you know, if you're doing a lot more quizzes or a lot more small assessments now, that's a great way to establish a rhythm. When I taught Italian, I did a what I called a verifica. And every day, this was still in the face-to-face -face format. Every day, we would do just a little uh, three or four question quiz on the, you know, on the homework. And this would cause students to actually study and actually read. And then at a certain point, I asked my students, okay, do you, should we stop doing this? Is, is this good for you? And they said, no, please, let's continue because it keeps us all on track. So that's a good way you can actually improve your students' comprehension over time by breaking it down into little pieces. And I think some structure like that is particularly important right now for students. I mean, they're they're anxious, they're confused, they're worried about grades, they they are worried about making sure that they understand course material. So establishing some new routines where they know this is what's going to happen, I think, will help them settle in as well. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that's good. So let me talk about another strategy that we discussed with our group, and that's what we called the distributed printing method, which I caution to mention it because in many ways it replicates or it tries to replicate what you would do in a classic test where you just print out 10 pages and have your students fill it out. If it is the case that your students have printers at home, then you could uh, send them a PDF, say print it, and then we're gonna work on it all together. And you, know, you might do this if you have to give a midterm or a chapter test and there's no way out of it. You're constrained by your departmental uh, regulations or something like that. So while I don't think this is all that practical because not every student has a printer at home, in fact, I would bet that most don't, there is another version of this that you can do, which is kind of the Google Doc version, huh, where yeah. you create a Google uh, a, a a folder in Google Drive, and you put the um, the Google Doc version of the test in that folder, 
and then you create however many uh, copies of that same file as you have students, and you name each file like Billy's exam, Jane's exam, and so you share that particular file with the student who's going to be filling out that exam. And as they are working, you can, as a teacher, you can, because you own, you are the uh, owner of that Google folder, you can jump from file to file and just kind of let your students know that you're keeping track of things and, you know, make sure that they know not to engage in any funny business as, as they're filling out the answer. Because, you know, you really have lower exam security when you're teaching in this way. Um, so can I ask a practical question about this? Sure. Would you share those um, individual files for Billy and for Jane with their Gmail addresses? Or do you actually at Columbia have a university-wide Google Drive where you share it with their Columbia email addresses? So at Columbia, everybody is using the Gmail suite. So it's kind oh, of okay. baked in. It might be different at other schools. So yeah, I think this may be, a, you know, really useful at Columbia as a suggestion. And if you, it may not be so useful in other places, but there are other tools you could do the same thing with, sure. for example, yep. with Dropbox or yep. Yep. Uh, yep. whatever your particular university uses. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's again, a great suggestion, yeah. This is kind of like, you know, I'm really more on the, the side of we should kind of change the way in which we're doing assessments and get away from these high stakes, synchronous, uh, summative assessments as much as possible. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good idea, not only in general, but particularly right now, given the environment that we're finding ourselves in here. So what have the Cornell instructors talked about in terms of assessments? What, what, what ideas have they been coming up with as you've been speaking with them? I think one thing has been, um, especially for the... Um, more summative pieces of assessment to simply take the paper-based tests that they used to give in class and moving those onto the LMS canvas for us as well. Um, and we're in a fortunate situation where we are not teaching yet. So we mm -hmm. still have time right now to prepare for what we're going to do. Um, some teachers have been thinking about um, what can you do to maintain um, spoken practice, oral practice, and utilizing Zoom breakout rooms for that to have students pair up and do conversations like that. And then maybe also have that carry over um, outside of the regular face-to-face um, -face or synchronous instruction to ask students to um, still utilize the LMS and, and do Zoom meetings and maybe record that for smaller projects or um, yeah, oral assessments or oral practice like that. Yeah, I think that being in a, a Zoom breakout room and recording that session would be a great way to have to, to generate more accessible material. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an excellent idea. I hadn't thought of that. You mentioned. Oh, go ahead. Well, and students can do that actually outside of the regularly scheduled classroom time. Right. Mm, so. Yeah. When we usually, when we ask students to do project work or they have to work together, interview one another, um, within Canvas, they can just start their own um, Zoom conversation and record that. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a good idea. You mentioned Canvas and, and you mentioned using the LMS. And that's, uh, I guess, the final point that we talked about in our workshop, which is, you know, for us, we use Canvas and it has a rather robust and easily configurable quiz feature. 
-hmm. And so many of the assessments that you might do on paper or many of the more summative assessments, higher stakes assessments could theoretically be offloaded into the Canvas quiz feature. And one advantage of that is that it plugs right into your gradebook as well. Yeah. So it's very easy to keep track of the results. Yeah. And especially depending on what kind of questions you have your students respond to, um, if you can even formulate some of them as multiple choice or something that can be auto-graded that will help at the end of the semester. Um, I think, again, in, in languages in general, we are in a more fortunate situation where our classes are smaller. But for some of our colleagues with some larger lectures, I think auto-grading features um, in an LMS will become huge. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So um, I was wondering if I could talk about something that's been on my mind yes, on this, on this please. very topic. I have a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if, if you saw this, but at Columbia, we have officially moved from a letter grading system to a pass-fail mm. system of grading. And, you know, this was, uh, we found out about this on Friday, and we're still trying to process exactly what that means for our yeah. language classes. And, and I imagine, you know, it's conceivable that other schools will also do this. I know that some have already done it. Others may do it. Others may not. But, um, you know, for any of your listeners who are in that situation, I think that one idea that we've had is that the, the disadvantage of doing this is you make students feel in a language class as though they're not getting as much feedback on what they're doing as they were before. They yeah. feel, oh, if I do that, if no matter what I do, it's going to be basically a, a, an A. Everybody yeah. nope. gets an A unless you really screw mm -hmm. up and stop coming to class. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, still on the topic of silver linings, I was thinking that this might be an opportunity to to substitute some of those letter grade based assessments with using the using proficiency based assessments using the actual can do statements and proficiency benchmarks. So as students are are being assessed on say uh, a written project or on a chat or on a recorded. Uh, dialogue that they have with another uh, participant, you can give them some of the the feedback from the actual can-do statements and and let them know that you know the fact that you're speaking in this way or you know the this type of uh, statement indicates that you know it belongs to this you know the intermediate mid level or the advanced uh, low level or the the um, beginner high level, and to kind of introduce that vocabulary to students, I think can actually be really beneficial because it helps them understand that you know there it's not a good or bad thing when you give somebody an a or when you give somebody a b or you give somebody a c they kind of feel like oh it's you're talking about me as a person but when you switch to the um the proficiency based model what you're saying is this is what you can do in the language at this time so again this is kind of an opportunity to rethink and reconfigure some aspects of your course that after we get back to our normal way of doing things could still be beneficial to you. You can still rely on the work that you do now in your language class going forward. And I think that your future students would benefit from the work that you put in to kind of transform your class into a more proficiency-based class. And I know that there's lots of resources on how to do this. Certainly the, uh, the trainings for doing uh, Oral proficiency interviews can be really yeah. beneficial, or even just reading the actual can-do statements and thinking about how some of these can apply to the 
forms of assessment that you're currently doing. And I think another thing that comes with that too, if you move more toward um, proficiency-based assessments and, and grading and articulating what students can do, is that it's easier for students to track their own progress in the language too. So they can they can check on the can-do statement, okay, right now I can check off three, but in a week I can check off another one and then another one. So they really, they see their own growth rather than constantly having to me measure themselves against a student who already has started out with a much higher proficiency. Yeah, it, it really empowers students, I think. Yeah. It allows them to understand their own process of language learning, which as mm -hmm. you mentioned at the at the beginning, is different from say a history class or yeah. a biology class. Yep. You know, learning a language is a is a completely different process from a cognitive perspective. Yep. And I think that, you know, moving to a more proficiency based uh, format is a way to better reflect that distinct cognitive situation that a yeah. that a language learner is in. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I like that you're framing all of this positively in terms of silver linings. And I really think this is this is the approach we all need to take. There are lots of opportunities that come out of the situation that we find ourselves in right now. So let's um, take this positive approach and try to make the best out of it and continue to give our students the best learning experience that they can have. Yeah. You know, I think that as as somebody who has worked with distance language learning before, I'm having to work a lot now and 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 really help yeah. other people get up to speed on how to do it. And in many ways, I'm 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 very busy, but I'm also grateful that I'm so busy. Yeah. And so if if you as a language teacher are able to, if you have the bandwidth to do this, if you have the ability to sit down and put some extra effort into your course design and rethink some of what you're doing in your language class, not just for the short term, but also for the long term. It, it will benefit your students in the long term, but it will also benefit you right now because yep. you can really kind of throw yourself into it and, and give yourself something to, to work on uh, in this time that's, that's so challenging. Chris, thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time to yeah. talk about all these things that have been uh, crossing all of our minds since we've been in this unprecedented time. But before you go, something we didn't have the chance to ask you the last time you were on the <laughs> podcast, sure. we'd like to know about your favorite word in a language that you speak or are learning, want to learn. Uh, so what might that be? Sure. So I will talk about a word from Italian because that's the that's the language I focused on the most. And that word is sfumatura, S-F-U-M-A-T-U-R-A. And that word means basically like a, a gradient or a shade of meaning or something that gradually changes from one thing to another thing. And, and I think it's really interesting that yeah. in English, we don't have a really precise word for that in the way that we do in Italian. Huh. Um, and I kind of, I, I feel like it gives you an insight into the Italian mentality of things more kind of like artistic and uh, the, understanding the different shades of, of meanings and light and color. And, and what's interesting is that uh, conversely, Italian doesn't really have a word for pattern. So I see sumatura huh. and pattern as kind of these these yeah. interesting, uh, and, and I think that pattern kind of gives you a, some kind of insight into the mentality of an English speaker as well. Mm -hmm. So that's why I love that, that word in Italian. Nice. Awesome. Well, Chris, yeah. thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 
Next week, we will continue our special focus on teaching and learning strategies for language in a virtual space. Until then, auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.